Ooh, that theme song. How about it? Oh, dang. How about you? We still haven't figured out a theme song or a name for the show, but uh, I'm I'm Joe McElhaney. I'm Scott Beckett. And uh, we're here to talk our favorite band and yours, Steely Dan. Mm-hmm. This is episode two, but in a way it's episode one. Right. Uh, uh, last week we prepared the ship. Last week, episode zero. Exactly. Yeah, we, we, we prepped the ship. We uh, hoisted the mainsail. We smashed a bottle of champagne over the bow. But now we are pulling... Uh, out of uh, out of dock and we, into the uh, the seas of Steely Dan. We are semen. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, and, mom and children. Yeah. Yes, semen uh, and children. Um, um, yeah, with us always is uh, producer Dakota. Yep. Um, uh, pro- producer Dakota um, uh, just heard for the first time, uh, at least in his memory, uh, the uh, the subject of today's episode. Side one, track one, off of Steely Dan's first studio release, "Can't Buy a Thrill." Uh, the song "Do It Again" from 1972. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. We we just sat and listened to the song in its entirety, uncut, not the single version. Um, yeah, like like worshippers at church, <laughs> yeah. heads bowed. I had my eyes closed. Yep. Uh, you know, we have to. We're we're trying to bring that "Do It Again" energy into this thing. A meditation. Yes. Um, but yeah, D- Dakota, what'd you, what'd you think? I was actually surprised by how much you talked about them being perfectionists last time, but how noodly they were on the song. Mm-hmm. It's very noodly. Yeah. 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 But I, I didn't hate it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, part of me wanted to look over and see you, uh, with like either tears streaming down your face <laughs> Because you were like, music has never spoke to me so deeply. <laughs> or to look over and you're just like trying to stifle laughter and you're like, what did I fucking get myself into here? Um, but yeah, any any other thoughts on the song before? Uh... Um, was there a sitar in there? Yes, there, there was. was a sitar. An electric sitar. Okay, so I know that Steely Dan is Steely and Dan and one of them plays sitar. Uh, that uh, all wildly inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, um, and uh, just to uh, uh, finish out framing up the show, so we're going to talk about uh, do it again. And also, last week on episode zero, um, we said uh, we're going to we're always going to talk about the song and then um, stuff that the song uh, reminds us of. So, um, Joe uh, uh, threw out uh, as his suggestion for uh, what. Do It Again makes him think of uh, the film Inside Lewin Davis uh, by the Coen brothers. Uh, and interestingly, uh, I had arrived also with a Coen brothers uh, suggestion that uh, Do It Again made me think of, uh, which was uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. A little more uh, on-the-nose connection to the song in terms of it uh, being a dark western uh, joke. Uh, a, a bit more thematic with the uh, the, the, the cycles and the, and the repetition. Uh, but interestingly, we both arrived with uh, Coen Brothers movies. So at the back half of the show, uh, we will be talking about uh, our thoughts and feelings and, and meditations on um, Inside Lewin Davis and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Our exegesis exegesis on on all matters, do it again, Inside Lewin Davis, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah. Cool. Um, so maybe uh, I don't know. Like, there's not that much like stats to do. Um, 
in terms of like uh, just like laying out the facts, right? Like we said, uh, uh, this this album dropped in 1972. We talked a little bit about like the story of the band um, last week. Um, Gary Katz was the name that I was trying to pull up. Gary Katz was the producer friend that, that they had that left and went to ABC Records and then got them signed uh, to uh, ABC Records and saying them very specifically, Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. Um, and they built a band around that songwriting duo. Um, and then you can you can kind of see that like um, that Donald and Walter, um, I think like were like sort of like nervously stepping onto the stage. And so it's like surrounded themselves with some other sort of um, like studio hitmen, uh, professional Heavy musicians. Hitters, right. Sure. Um, to sort of like so they could sort of step back um, and hide on the on the back of the stage a little bit. Um, yeah, and at, at this point in the band, Donald Fagan did not fancy himself the vocalist, right? He, his intention was never to be the lead singer. Am I, am I right in that? Well, I mean, it's interesting because he does sing most of the, <laughs> um, he does sing, uh, most of the, the lyric, the, the lead vocals on this album, but they did sign this guy, David Palmer to be like the good singer. Um, the like the talented professional vocalist. Good being very subjective. <laughs> right, case. right. Yeah, exactly. But um, where you are right is like apparently like when they were um, touring this album, um, Fagan almost never sang on stage. He would never sing on stage, and I think it took him a long time to get comfortable singing on stage. So like if you look up, I think even if you look up, I don't know about do it again, but I. Um, like a lot of these songs, if you look up YouTube videos of them performing on like American Bandstand or something, um, David Palmer will be singing as opposed to Donald yeah. Fagan. I, I actually, before I came here today, watched him on Midnight Special with two maracas in his hand <laughs> singing it. And he, he does an okay job, but you you don't believe him for a fucking second. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, He looks funny with the maracas, though. He's... <laughs> Yeah. He's got that front man energy, I guess. Yeah, and I highly encourage everybody to like just take a look at uh, like Google images of everybody that was uh, in the band at this time. The original lineup was, um, uh, so we said Walter Becker on bass, um, Donald Fagan on keys, and often on uh, guitar. Um, Denny Diaz, who uh, I like, uh, uh, he's described in one review that I uh, read as a, a man mountain uh, <laughs> in overalls uh, playing electric sitar. Um, Jeff Skunk Baxter, who's a fascinating character. I hope we get a lot of opportunity to talk about um, Jeff Skunk Baxter because he's both an incredible guitar player. He played with Steely Dan for a long time and then left to play with the Doobie Brothers uh, and then became a rocket scientist. I, I know nothing about this guy, uh, shamefully, so I'm looking forward to yeah, fascinating delving character. in. Yeah. So, like, yeah, self-taught, or I, I don't know how he learned guitar, but he's a very good guitar player. Um, and then, um, self, like, literally a self-taught rocket scientist. He wow. just, like, he, he, like, he was interested in, like, audio engineering because he was a musician. And, like, just that sort of translated into, like, um, rocket like electric, like, electrics, designing electronic systems for rockets and stuff. Anyway, fascinating dude. Uh, so Jeff Skunk Baxter also on guitar uh, with Danny Diaz. Um, Jim Hotter was the like sort of the the drummer in the lineup. Although this is this song um, uh, for Do It Again, they brought in Victor Feldman, who I think was more of a like old jazz head um, to do yeah, the did percussion. Some, did some sessions with Miles Davis. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I think and, Hotter is still on the drums proper, but they, they also oh Feldman's have doing like the congos, the congos, and stuff. which I I think. Um, Skunk Baxter would do live. Okay, he he was he's apparently a great uh, conga player. Yeah, um, and I guess like th- this might be a good point to 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 point out that like uh, um, Steely Dan frustrates a lot of music nerds because they um, 
they do like very like general liner notes. They don't have like track by track. Here's what everybody did for the most part. Like, so like there, a lot of people have done a lot of work to, um, to figure out like what actually, like who actually played what, um, on like everybody who's on the album is credited, but not like, so you know that they played on this song and and did this part. Um, yeah, like uh, funnily, like, so they talk about Denny Diaz playing the electric sitar and then, um, because there's two solos in this song, the electric sitar solo, uh, and then an organ solo, which in the liner notes is uh, described as being an inexpensive, an inexpensive imported plastic organ, uh, which apparently somebody actually figured out as a Yamaha YC30. Somehow I remembered I remembered this incorrectly that I thought it was credited as a nausea organ, <laughs> uh, which is a pretty good way to describe it. I don't know how that how those wires got crossed in my brain, but that's how I thought it was credited. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I did want to. Um, yeah, I, do, I, I just like. Um, uh, so I found this. If, if you go on all music, the all music review is by a, uh, somebody named uh, Stuart Mason, um, who spends a lot of time talking about like. So this, I mean, we said like "Do It Again" was was a single off of the album. Right. Um, so this was sort of their like announcing themselves to the world with this song, and like couldn't be a weirder way to do it. They did have a single before this called "Dallas" that the drummer actually sings on. Interesting, but I I think it's just lost to time. This was definitely the the real uh, the real debut. Um, yeah. And to do that, so they like they release this song, which is like built around a Latin beat. Um, it's got like a shuffle. It's got an electric sitar. It's got an organ solo. Um, the the lyric is sort of I don't, like I don't know what's the word for like the the lyric is I don't it's like uh, what am I trying to say like the it's it seems like uh, something that's always been there like almost hackneyed or something uh, traditional yeah, almost. yeah yeah it it, it the this will connect back later, but as I was watching the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I was like, you know, if Do It Again was one of the songs that is sung in that movie, it would not be out of place. Right. Um, in, a, in a lot of ways. Right, yeah. You could, yeah, there's like a couple of those stories that if you just drop that song in behind it, it would make total, I mean, I, I, to me, especially the Fan, the Franco um, oh, uh, yeah. near yeah. Algodonas or um, the, the town. Anyway, um, but yeah, so the, I don't know. Um, I guess, did you... How did you feel about this song before it was like a thing that we teed up as a thing we're going to do a whole episode about? Um, well, I mean, it's definitely one of the first Steely Dan songs I remember hearing. Yeah. Um, I think I said last week that I was, when it was in the kind of uh, classic rock soup, I always thought it was just like a Santana song or something. Yeah. Um, I actually I thought about this. Um I remember trying to write a short story uh, after college when I was living at my parents' house, um, a relatable thing for many people, I'm sure, uh, where uh, my only concept for the story was that, um, A, I hated Short Pump Mall. I had an experience there um, at an Urban Outfitters where I... uh, just felt so much disgust with the world and it stuck with me for years and i tried to write this story where some kids are hanging out at a short pump like mall and do it again is playing and i like wrote like this like description of the electric sitar solo and this is typical of me like just coming up with a not even a premise for a story, just like a moment and yeah. then having nothing to build around it. So right. I just have like three paragraphs of this story. 
<laughs> that's just like fuck short pump do it again is playing isn't that a clever commentary on what i don't know yeah um, so i've always liked the song it was on my playlist last week yeah um, and uh i don't know that i came to any deeper understanding of it but i surely didn't mind listening to it over and over again yeah um uh, I don't know what what's your relationship with the song. Yeah, like I, uh, I guess like you, like my awareness of it was about the same. I knew it was a Steely Dan song. I feel like I I can't remember not knowing about this song. Um, but it, I always like it, to me. I, like it's and like I don't think that this is necessarily in any way like objectively true. But like I never, um, I don't think of this as like a typical Steely Dan song for some reason. And I was like surprised that um, you know one of the reviewers just like you said that like this this is like maybe. Steely Dan's best known song. And that just never has felt true for me. Like for some reason, when I think of like classic or prototypical Steely Dan, I think of um, mild school or reeling in the years. Yeah. Even off like that. Like if I think of like prototypical early Dan, like that's what I think of. I don't think of this song, but I also just don't think like I ever like listened to this song carefully until we started like the podcast. And um, cause I never noticed the sitar. I mean, it's like, if you would ask me like, I, I, don't, I mean, if you just asked me out of the blue, like, what's that song sound like? I don't even know that I would have said, like, oh, there's this really weird guitar part. Um, but if I, like, as soon as I sat down and listened, you're like, oh, my gosh, how did I miss that there's a freaking sitar in there? Yeah. And the two solos and everything. And, yeah, like you said, like, it, I would if you had said, do you want to listen to Do It Again 40 times in the space of two weeks? I would have said probably not. But having done that, that was a very easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I don't know, for me, this is a song that, like, can... I mean, we talked about this a little bit. Like, this like super embodies that principle of Celia Dan that we talked about where they can slide by unnoticed unless you are like keeping a careful ear out. Yeah. And I, I think the only thing that's kind of typically Steely Dan about it. And it's again, only if you're listening and only if you kind of um, look at the, the entirety or, or much of their work is, is the worldview of the song. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, to me, it's almost like they're uh, laying out, you know, first track, first album, this is what we're about. Yeah. This is what we believe, or uh, this is what we will uh, say we believe. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. Um, in almost every way, like the lyric, the music. It's like that, that's where I mean. It's like the the way that it almost musically, it seems like it's like staking out some territory. Right. It's like we're going to take a Latin beat. We're going to take a sitar. We're going to take uh, uh, you know jazz breaks, and that's like this is our turf. This is what we're doing. Yeah, it, it occurred to me this time that the the bass part that Walter Becker plays very jazzy. Yeah, um, I don't know that I had ever, with everything else going around, I don't know that I'd ever paid attention to that before. But it's definitely kind of a classical um, bass line I, for for jazz. Um, yeah. That's <laughs> there's the limits of my jazz. <laughs> it's got a real uh, uh, boop boop to it. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. And that's one thing that like struck me listening to it a lot was like Dakota pointed out. Um, I feel like the um, that sort of like the 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 Latin congas, the piano or the organ part, um, and then the vocal are very steady and sort of insistent, mm-hmm. and it's like this pulse that care like quietly but powerfully drives the song and then around that everything else is like you know dakota said noodling i w- i was thinking of like especially like the way that sitar solo like builds it's like everything else is like on a simmer and then like 
one at a time you sort of turn the heat up on those pots like you turn the heat up on the sitar and it like bubbles up and then like fades back down and then you turn the heat up on the organ and then yeah like the bass is just kind of quietly doing that the whole time yeah it's like this interesting contrast between like this like steady sort of like not quite plotting but like very deliberate I mean it's got that like laid back you know it's it, it's got that Latin beat where it's you know syncopated and stuff so it still feels it doesn't feel like staid or um um boring but uh but it but it feels like steady and insistent and then like this like very like bubbly frothy noodling happening around it yeah i can see that um i always think of uh when the guitar kind of comes in yeah it to me like there's part of me that doesn't want to narrativize the sounds of music but it's also as somebody who doesn't know how to talk about music yeah. When I describe things, I'm like, yeah, it sounds like uh, you, you threw a couple of wolves in a, wa- a washer or something. <laughs> and people are like, yeah, whatever the fuck that means. Right. You know, it's, but to me, like, as the guitar comes in, it sounds like fucking rattlesnakes or something yeah. with the percussion. And uh, to me, this is like a hot song. It's like a desert song. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it kind of nods to cowboys and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Vegas. So it, it's, to me, a it makes me think of the desert and, and heat and maybe some of that's the Latin uh, groove or I've heard it also described as bossa nova, which is Brazilian. uh, Right. But, um, yeah, it's, it's to me and my, my pick inside Lewin Davis is a wintry movie. Yeah. Uh, so I, I felt kind of off there, but yeah, this is a song that makes me think of the summer. Yeah. Um, But not in the sense of this is the big summer hit. Uh, yeah. The lyric, I mean, we talked a, a little bit about it. Like, um, what's your impression of the, 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 the lyric on this song? Um, well, I think my, my easy take, and I, I don't think there's any... The, the lyrics to this song are not very controversial about their deeper meanings. I mean, it's pretty yeah. straightforward in a lot of ways. But, you know, it's just kind of that, that loop, the, the kind of loser's loop, the mm-hmm. addict's loop, the... the um, you know, when left to your own devices, you're just going to do the same thing over and over and keep screwing up over and over again. Yeah. Um, yeah. What about you? Yeah. It's, I, to me, the lyrics strike me amongst like the Steely Dan catalog as being very on the nose. Like I, you know, like I tend to think of, um, the typical Steely Dan song as being like, um, one story, a short story told with like, like very brief glimpses, like Mm -hmm. very like brief, but sharp detailed glimpses. And then you kind of have to fill in a lot of the, um, the detail yourself. And this is almost the opposite, like, you know, like, like Dr. Wu or, um, like is like a typical one black cow. Um, all those, it's like, I'm showing you like little, like, frames of information and then when taken together they like they suggest a story right um and like you may not have like the major details right but you'll have like the emotion of it right and the sort of like the yeah like the tone of it right and this is almost the opposite this is like very concrete um but also like very brief like three sketches right um it's like whereas like if every other song is sort of an impressionist painting like this one is like like super like um, black and white like line drawing of like yeah. here's what it yeah. is yeah. like that's uh, a good way of putting it here's a guy in the west here's a guy who's um, um, being cheated on and cheating on his significant other and then here's a guy who can't stop gambling right um, yeah um, should we should we go verse by verse does that make sense or yeah well I mean we can yeah we can we, I don't know if we want to read the lyrics but we can um, definitely like walk through the 
the song. I just like it's I got like the I was thinking like is there like very often there's a line in the song that I love to death. Mm. And this one I don't know if I could say that. Yeah, I there's I said last week something to the effect of like every Steely Dan song has a lyric that kind of throws to the rest of the catalog. I'm mm. not quite sure what it is here. There's there's the line in the third verse. Um I I wrote it down. I don't want to misquote it. Yeah. <laughs> Have my expert expert credit uh, thrown out. <laughs> um your black cards can make you money, so you hide them when you're able. In the land of milk and honey, you must put them on the table. Uh, yeah. I think, I mean, we can dig into that more when we get to the third verse, but uh, that to me uh, feels feels like it sums up a lot of Steely Dan in some ways. Uh, Which is interesting, because like, when I think of that... Like the first, if I think about that line, it's the kind of line where, like, if I'm half paying attention, I'm like, oh, right, yeah, that's a that's a clever lyric. And then I think about it, like, if I actually try to like parse it, it's like, I mean, I get the I get the gambling thing, obviously, of like you're trying to conceal your cards, um, but like, I mean, the metaphor then is like, um, I guess it's like you're succeeding by concealing your emotions or your true motives or something, and you're exploiting that. And in I guess like in the land of milk and honey is like uh, utopia or like a I think it's you know usually what they refer to like uh, the promised land in the Bible. So yeah. I, so some sort of paradise. I take it as ironic here. Um, yeah, <clears throat> but just like everything, you'll have to be open about it. Like you won't be able to exploit right being subtle about your motives. Yeah, I, I take it as you know your black cards. Obviously, the, there's the literal meaning, but it's also like these are your you know if you want to get biblical about it, this is your inherent sinful nature mm. or, or your your personality defects. And then, uh, you know, as you can you can try to conceal that shit as much as you can. Yeah. Uh, even though you're using it to your advantage and to play other people. Yeah. But there's there's going to come a point where you've got to put your cards on the table, and uh, you know where you can't hide from who you are anymore. Yeah. Um, and it's in it, you know the land of milk and honey. I don't take to literally mean paradise. I don't right. think this is like a religious song. Like you die and you <laughs> you reach the final judgment, but it's like you got to you got to play the hand you got, and the hand you got is that you're a piece of shit. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. And then the other like I, I'll invent like I am a pretty naive guy um, generally, especially when it comes to like matters of the heart and stuff. Like I don't know how long it would have taken me like with just the text to figure out that the second like the story of the second verse is uh you catch your lover with your best friend and so you go to try to find a an affair yourself and that affair is unfulfilling yeah i i always read it i i see that as kind of the the main interpretation i always um it starts out uh Yeah, when you know she's no high climber. Yeah, then you find your only friend. I take that as you realize, you know, your self-esteem's low. You kind of know who you are, and you find somebody who's, you know, she's she's on the low end of the ladder, too. And so you you found your your partner. And then there's that break. Like, it's worded kind of funny. Yeah. Um, In a room with your two-timer, a lot of people read that as, uh, when you've you found your only friend in the room with, with this woman who is a two timer cause she's cheating on you. Yeah. I always just see it as like, this is, 
you're you're just sitting in the room with this person that you know is doing you know operating behind your back doing shady shit behind your back hooking up with people behind your back and and uh you know you're you're going crazy you gotta you gotta go out and uh Get some strange, as the old guys say. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm disgusted that I just said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's a dark song. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a it's it's a dark song. And then the first the first verse we already talked about. I mean, it's we like, went through the song backwards. <laughs> yeah, but it's like a it's like a standard western. In the morning, you go gunning for the man who stole your water, um, which I always thought was. I mean, so it's like the, like I thought it was interesting that they sort of laid that out as like the guy seems to have like a legitimate beef. I mean, maybe it's not worth killing the guy over, but it's like yeah. you're not just angry. Like something happened. He's fucking with your survival. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you fire till he's done, and they catch you at the border. The mourners are all singing as they drag you by your feet, but the hangman isn't hanging, and they put you on the street. Yeah, uh, and then it goes into the chorus. They put you back on the street, and you're just gonna do it again. Right. You know, uh, the cycle restarts. Yep. Um, wheel turning round and round. I've heard people say that that's like the roulette wheel because mm. uh, of the gambling aspect. I just took it as yeah the 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 wheel of being an asshole and a, yeah and, and a fuck up the cycle know? of history yeah yeah. Um, yeah it's a good song yeah it's a great song um i uh again i don't want to narrativize but i feel like maybe going into the the solos a little more um when i when i listen to them i get almost this uh i can't help but put it in the this context of the song and then the the story yeah where as the sitar comes in it's got like this kind of confidence that uh okay i'm gonna beat this cycle yeah and then you start to hear it struggling as the notes pile up right you know? and there's kind of this maybe a mirage in the distance like i'm gonna finally get to it yeah and then that organ just comes in <laughs> and it's like this nauseating funhouse sounding like um, you know, he, he bends the pitch of the organ yep. and it, it just, it's like, nope, I'm caught up in it again. And then the, the song comes back, you right. know, the, the organ kind of, uh, brings, it's not the refrain. What, what's the word I'm looking for? Just like, yeah, like the main the, the theme of, of yeah, the song the riff. Uh, yeah, the main. comes in at the end and then there are these chimes and we're back in, yep. you know, it's like. You can't escape this cycle. Uh, it's an incredibly cynical way of looking at things and not how I see the world, although I've definitely felt that way at times in my life of like, why do I keep doing the same thing over right. and over again yep. and self-sabotaging? And it's like, you know, when you're caught in that, you can't see outside of it yeah. at all. Don't feel too bad. This the uh, this is the human condition. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great read. I didn't really thought about that. Yeah, especially like the way that the organ solo comes in because, like you said, yeah, like the um, it's almost like the um, yeah, like the sitar part like boils over. It, mm-hmm. it gets like so crazy and so high um, that it just sort of like falls to pieces. And then the, that <laughs> that that organ solo kind of like floats in from above because it starts off with like that that high whining like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then just kind of like like you said, like just kind of like smothers that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then brings you right back into the the main groove. Yeah, good song. If if you haven't listened to the song at this point, yeah, I just I'm thinking about how crazy this all sounds, <laughs> right? To somebody who's like hasn't ever heard the song before. Yeah. Um, 
So, as a note moving forward to our listeners, always listen to the song beforehand because oh, yeah, hey, we're going to spoil the song. Right, yeah, yeah, for sure. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna tell you what happens. Yeah. Um, but also, so you know what the hell we're talking about with these abstract like, Yeah. Uh, the song, the song to me sounds like an elbow getting broken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, if we could, if we ever figure out the licensing, we would absolutely like start this, start each episode with the song. But obviously, uh, we can't do that for uh, for legal reasons. Um, but yeah, we highly encourage you go listen to the song uh, as you approach uh, the episodes of the podcast. Yeah, should we should we start talking about thounds? Yeah, thounds, let's do cinema? it. So we both, uh, at least, I, I won't speak for Joe, but I was pretty delighted. Um, we did not discuss it before we got on the mics last week. Um, I was pretty delighted that we both came up with Coen Brothers movies. Oh yeah, yeah. off of this. Uh, and I told Joe before we got on the mics uh, for this episode, um, I like almost immediately went home and googled it, and it turns out that like we are not the first people, accidentally or intentionally, to connect the Coen Brothers and Steely Dan, uh, two sort of outsiders, master craftsmen. Um, bleak worldview, kind of smart ass. Yeah, a lot of uh, clever uh, wordplay and um, yeah uh, references, I guess. Heavily stylized. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the the Coen brothers, I don't. They're not accused of being necessarily like. Uh, well, I, I've seen them called like kind of. Uh, they have like a almost mechanical machine quality to the the pacing and rhythm of their work mm. and and their shot structures, but I don't think nobody can take their work as um, what am I going for here? Like bloodless or cold or yeah, I mean their worldview definitely. They're often accused of being uh, uh, misanthropic and and yeah. Uh, like oh they don't they have contempt for their characters they put them in in these kind of uh they set up traps for their characters and just delight in watching them step into them which yeah. i'm sympathetic to that reading sometimes yeah um but they're the films themselves i mean they they work with Roger Deakins and uh what's the guy's name that shot the two movies we're talking about today i forget but it is Bruno interesting del Bonnell, i think right um, there's there's a warmth to the images. Oh, there's yeah. uh, like the characters are too sympathetic. I don't know. In my experience with the films, like the characters are too sympathetic to think that like the Coen brothers don't like them or have contempt for them. Right, and I, they definitely use grotesques, but uh, yeah, um, yeah. I think that's a simplistic read to say that they're misanthropic. I think you can probably say that about Steely Dan. And and there is occasionally yeah I understand charges of coldness although I think that that's also simplistic yeah yeah um, yeah I agree um, yeah so um, uh, I don't know any like any like is it worth talking about like um, your like experience with the Coen brothers sort of like throughout history or uh... it, it it might be. Um... I mean, Fargo is for me the first adult movie I remember watching. Yeah. Um, like, I caught it on TBS probably when it debuted there. Um, so, watching it cut on cable, but um, something about that scene where uh, they come in through the back of the house yeah. to, to pull off the kidnapping, I mean, just scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. And watching these adults just like, screwing up at every turn <laughs> um it felt like i was being initiated into something yeah. um and you know from there i saw all the other ones um 
you know, as I got older, I didn't watch them all as a kid. Right. Um, but uh, th- I definitely went through a phase, and I think this happens to anybody who like gets serious about cinema, where there are certain people you turn against because you think it's like, oh, this is kind of basic to like them, or yeah. um, you start to come up with these half-formed ideas about like what cinema should be. Yeah. And I definitely had phases where I did think of them as like, cold and misanthropic and um i had some experiences particularly with inside lewin davis and uh barton fink which is one i still struggle with and and the man who wasn't there um where i almost got panicky watching it because i felt implicated somehow (laughs) and like this is fucked up that they're being this mean to this guy (laughs) um like I've almost, since come around yeah. where I can uh, appreciate it, but um, I've definitely had I I, I very nearly had a uh, drug and alcohol induced panic attack watching the man who wasn't there. Yeah, just as all the elements tumble in on this guy, and I was sitting in a rolly chair and just like <laughs> sliding across a floor, and like <laughs> I had to step outside and smoke a cigarette. My like head was exploding. Like yeah. I was like, this is fuck these guys, you know. Right. Um, what a, what's what's your Cohen relationship? I'm, I I wish I could remember like the first one I saw for sure, like the one that stuck with me. Um, uh, again, like I'll admit to being uh, basic in this regard. I still like I have always loved and still love um, the Big Lebowski. I've seen it dozens of times. That's a great fucking movie. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I mean, like I don't go to the conventions and stuff, but I'm I'm always like kind of interested that that people do. Um, my favorite story about the conventions is like somebody who does go to the conventions told me that like everybody goes in co- or many people go in costume. Um, and, but the, the goal, like the unstated goal is to have the most obscure costume. So mm-hmm. like one year he went and he just got some like seventies era, um, army fatigues and then went with dirt on one side of his face because he was one of Walter's buddies who had died face down in the muck. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, that's Oh, good. that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the, the first one I remember loving. And I think like, I kind of like largely went backwards. Like that's when I, I think like when the big Lebowski came out, that's when I became aware of them. And then I, like you said, like I worked backwards, eventually saw Fargo and Raising Arizona. Um, actually took me a long time until I, I only watched Blood Simple for the first time, like uh, maybe seven months ago or something. Um, but anyway, um, so like I've always tracked them. I, I tend to like their fun, what I think of as their fun movies. Like I, like you have a harder time with the dark, darker ones. I saw Barton Fink and like didn't get a lot out of it. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I it's funny that like I have like the opposite experience between um the Big Lebowski and Burn After Reading, uh, and then it made all the sense in the world where some um some critic said of Burn After Reading, it's the Big Lebowski post nine eleven, and I was like, okay, it's like the I'm Big Lebowski. Have to chew on that, but I like it. It <laughs> yeah. sounds right. <laughs> it's like Big Lebowski with no sense of humor. Yeah, and I was like, wow, okay. Um, then at least I felt like it's like it was understandable why I didn't like Burn After Reading. Like every one of their movies, like even Barton Fink, it's like you can always see the craftsmanship, and you never mm. feel like you. I, I always feel like they have done exactly what they wanted to do. Uh, but it's sometimes I have a really good time going along that ride, and sometimes like you, it's like, wow, this was this felt bad yeah. <laughs> and <Yeah>. weird. <laughs> uh, do you have? I mean, you said the Big Lebowski was what drew you in. Is that still still the favorite? Uh, or I don't know which ones. Which ones do you find yourself yeah. uh, sitting with the most these days? I mean, it's. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting question. The Big Lebowski, I will watch like anytime it's on. Like I'll stay with it. Um, same with like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou. 
Um, but it's interesting because, like, so, uh, like, Inside Lewin Davis, um, I saw it in the theater and really appreciated it and, like, actually did not have that bad of a time. Mm. Um, or, like, not even really a bad time at all. Like, I came away with it feeling like, oh, that was a, a, a sad story, but I appreciated going for that ride at the time. It was, like, perfect. Like, I saw it in the winter. I don't. I think they released it, like, probably at the right time. Like, the, it's, I, my memory is that, like, the, the weather I was experiencing was similar to the weather in the movie. And I came out of it and I was like, I don't know if I ever want to watch that movie again, but I'm glad I saw it once. And, like, that was one where I definitely, like, read a bunch of reviews because I was like, um, let me make sure I understand what's going on. And I was kind of tracking that movie coming out. Like, I was excited for it to come out and go go see it. Um. So that's a weird one in that like it is it seems like one of the sad bleak ones but like I uh, I I still enjoy it more than I thought that I would. Yeah. I I mean I've seen people call it one of their funniest movies too. Yeah. Um uh but it's yeah there's a there's a a real sadness to it. Yeah. Um maybe one of their most melancholy works. Yeah. Uh, uh which is not a not a way I would describe a lot of their work as melancholy. Yeah. Um yeah, for for me the big ones now, I I haven't watched it in a while, but I I think about Miller's Crossing a lot, which yeah. also has a melancholy to it, I guess. Yeah, um, and uh, and a serious man is is that's what I still haven't the, seen. Oh wow, yeah. yeah, okay, it's um it's a bleak one, um, but it's to me it's kind of like the key to everything else for them, right? It, it that's what it felt like, yeah, because um, it's it's vaguely autobiographical. Uh, autobiographical um although who can tell like like you said with steely dan last week coen brothers very slippery you don't know where they stand on anything yeah it feels very deliberate that it's that way right um but yeah and thematically it it definitely uh, pulls into focus everything i think no country for old men there's like a break there where the the films are definitely more death obsessed Mm -hmm. um more kind of, uh, I don't want to say spiritual, but like concerned with existential questions. They've always been that way, but more kind of the big ones. Right. Um, I don't know. Should we should we get into the the movies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we we started talking about Inside Lewin Davis a little bit, but yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Let, let's shift into the the two particular that we teed up for for this week, and we'll go uh, chronologically. So we'll start with. Uh, inside Lewin Davis, right? Um, which uh, we're gonna get into spoilers here. I don't. I hate saying that, like, yeah. oh, spoiler alert. But right. you know, if if you care about knowing what happens in these movies and and you haven't seen them, you know, pause, go watch them, come back. Um, yeah, we can't speak for all time, but if you're listening to this relatively uh, near the time of recording, they are both available for streaming. Yes, that's true. Uh, for uh, one, uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs is on Netflix because it was released by Netflix, and, and uh, uh, Inside Lou and Davis is on Prime. Yeah, um, or, or you know, support your local library. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> um, Great call. Uh, okay, so I'm uh, notoriously terrible at uh, describing plots to things, but. In the case of Inside Lewin Davis, uh, I mean, the Coen brothers said, we realized halfway through the movie uh, that we don't have a plot, so they, they throw this cat in as a, <laughs> as a device. I, I um, didn't see that one. That's a good one. Uh, so, basic, the gist is, Lewin Davis is, as played by Oscar Isaac, this is kind of his big breakout role. Mm-hmm. Um, he's this self-sabotaging 
folk singer um, in the early 1960s in New York, uh, loosely based on uh, Dave Van Ronk, but not really. Yeah. Uh, the Coens are great at kind of taking a, a point of reference and then taking it to their own place. They don't they don't really respect um, sticking to a source right. uh, at all, right. um, which frustrates a lot of people. Uh, well, it's good for Dave Van, Van Ronk. That yeah. he, he was both more successful than Lewin Davis and less miserable. Yeah, by all accounts, a nice guy. Yeah. Um, Lewin Davis, not a nice guy. Um, not completely unrelatable either. Um, well, and not mean, right? He's just like... Um, He's a little mean sometimes, but uh, yeah. But I mean, like, I, I, it's, I mean, it seems like he's just like sort of like hopelessly. I don't know. He's, I don't know that there's a better word than like fuck up. Like he's just he just is yeah. a fuck up. Yeah, he he inflicts a lot of pain for sure. But it, like it don't, like it usually doesn't seem deliberate. It's just because like he's stumbling and he can't sort of help but be in the way or be. Yeah, it's a passive deliverance of, yeah. of harm onto others. Um, yeah, he's. Uh, I mentioned a cat earlier. <laughs> One of the devices that runs throughout the movie is, you know, he, he just crashes on people's couches. Yeah. Uh, that's how he lives. And he lets these um, nice professors that uh, he stays with, he lets their cat out and uh, chases out it out into the New York street. Um, and throughout the movie, he has to kind of take care of this cat um, that he does not want to take care of. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, He's he got um, a friend of his 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 wife pregnant, uh, yeah. played by Carrie Mulligan, uh, yeah. the the friend played by Justin Timberlake, <laughs> yeah, um, and has to uh, pay for her abortion um, yeah. because she doesn't know whether the child is Lewin's or um, her husband's, um, and the. Uh, as the movie progresses, um, or progresses is a weird way to frame it. He ends up going to Chicago with these two kind of um, uh, beat yeah. figures out of beat literature. Yeah. Uh, Roland Turner is his name, I think. The uh, jazz musician, yeah. Uh, played by John Goodman, a, a, a junkie jazz musician with uh, some physical impairment. Yeah. Who's uh, just this blowhard. Um, yeah. And his silent, basically, uh, driver, Johnny Five. Beat poet. Yeah, yeah. aspiring beat poet, Johnny uh, Five, played like Garrett Hedlund. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, those those two characters, like, like you said, like, the Coen brothers are often accused of uh, creating grotesques. And, like, these are, like, this, literally, like, these are yeah. caricatures. Um, Which, like, I, I love. Like, especially because, yeah. like, and the, the, the casting was so good. Like, I don't know how John Goodman felt good about getting that part, but, like, to me, like... John Good, I just love like that's a perfect thing to like wind up John Goodman and let him roll. Yeah, and it's which like, they do wow. better than anybody. On yeah, um, I, I'll say the first time I saw the movie, I think that was something I hated about it was those characters. Yeah, but um, uh, Kent Jones, a, a critic that I've, I've been reading a lot lately, um, in his one of his pieces about the the movie, he he points out that yeah, these characters are kind of grotesque, but then there's these scenes where like John Goodman's character. Um, gets out of the car to go to the bathroom and, mm. and Garrett Hedlund's character walks him to the bathroom and they're these shots that don't really need to be there but there's like this real sadness and kind of beauty to them Yeah, and he says something like Kent Jones says like these moments suggest a relationship totally unique um, 
and th- that goes beyond the grotesque. It's it's yeah. really like what is the relationship between these guys, right? Um, and doing that to me, like they're great at yes, they have these grotesques, but they're so specific and so um, so deeply felt in a way and mm-hmm. performed with such precision, but also depth. Um, yeah, that that it goes beyond that. Um, yeah, like that that relationship feels very humanizing, especially because like I feel like I've read a couple of people say that like um, like those those characters are grotesques for a reason. Like they're almost symbols. Like they really kind of are. It's like the um, uh, uh, the John Goodman character Roland Turner is like the the. Well, it's interesting because he's a jazz man, but it's like sort of a commercial sellout. Like do what you got to do for money. And then Garrett Hedlund is like the the purist. It's mm. like totally up his own ass with his poetry. It's like that's you know I, like, had, I hadn't thought of that at all. That's that's an interesting take. Yeah, that's... and somebody said like you know, and he like you know, Lewin meets these characters when he's sort of at this crossroads and he's trying to figure out what he's going to do. And so like it's interesting. Yeah, like they set them up as like these these competing ideologies. Mm. But then like you said, like those the the representatives of these competing ideologies find a way to like live together and support each other. Oh wow! Yeah, I hadn't thought about that at all. Um, yeah. Eventually, Lewin gets to to Chicago and yeah. plays for this guy Bud Grossman, based on uh, Albert Grossman. Um, yeah, and played by F. Murray Abraham, who's like another guy. Is like I don't know why that guy doesn't work more, but like I'm always delighted to see F. Murray Abraham. Yeah, and and he's this is basically his big shot. Um, he's meaningfully uh, doing this at the Gate of Horn, um, right. and. Uh, a reference to uh, uh, Ulysses, but also a real place, apparently. Right. Uh, so, uh, and he plays him this song. Um, do you do you remember what it's called? Uh, I forget what it's called. It's the one about. Um, uh, it's like the one about Queen Jane. Yeah, uh, and her does her baby die inside of her? Or what's the? Yeah, she's she's pregnant and she's afraid she's going to lose the baby. And mm. it's, uh, it's Henry the Third or Henry the Eighth. I don't remember. Anyway. She like the king is desperate for a male heir. She really wants to give it to him, so she tells them to cut the baby out of her. But everybody like this is you know whenever it is, um, so like they know that that'll kill her. So nobody wants to do it, right? But in the end, they do cut it out of her, and she dies. So a great song to sing for your big break. <laughs> yeah, um, it's like very traditional. Yeah, um, and he plays it, and and uh, Salieri. <laughs> that's that's who. <laughs> Yeah. F. Murray Abraham, maybe his most famous role, playing Salieri yeah. and, and Amadeus. Um, he just says, I don't see a lot of money here. Yeah. And Lewin accepts this. Um, yeah. And that was his big break. He blew it halfway through the movie. Right. Um, and goes back uh, to where he came from. Uh, goes back to New York. Um, a really surreal drive back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to get into everything that happens because uh, this... This is already digressive enough. Yeah. But essentially the way the movie is structured is we realize, and the reason that I thought of this um, for Do It Again, is the movie is structured as one big loop. Yeah. And when uh, Lewin gets back to New York, um, at the end of the movie, we see the first scene of the movie played again with slightly more happening. Um, And the first time I saw it, hated the movie the whole way through get to the end and i'm like god damn it now i've got to think about this (laughs) like i was so ready to put it away because there was a part of me that really could relate to lewin and not in a way that i was comfortable with yeah um and the the fact that it's just this loop you know and and 
it's not like done in like a surreal way. It's played very straightforward, so you could almost yeah. I don't know how to describe like the. Uh, it's not like, oh look what we did here. It's just played very straight. Yeah, that, that this is yeah. This is the movie's a circle. Um, yeah, in almost a Steely Dan kind of way, where if you're not paying attention, it like sort of the the. The dramatic import of that could slip by you. Yeah. But if you are watching, you're like, wait, what? Yeah. yeah. And, and I've even read, like, I've read two different takes. Like, and I had the same interpretation that you did, that, like, that what you see is the first scene of the movie. You realize at the end of the movie, like, the rest of the movie is building up to it. So you see the end of the movie first, and then you see, like, the week that led up to that night. It, it, the show it starts with him playing a gig at a cafe. Mm. And then it cuts to him waking up on the couch of the professor's. Um, but the, the rest of the movie gets him back to the cafe and that gig. Mm. Um, and then he goes in the back alley and he gets beat up. Mm. Somebody else pointed out that he plays a different song or he plays, he sings different lyrics in from the, the first scene of the movie and the last scene of the movie. Mm. So somebody else was saying like, it literally is a loop. Like he yeah. literally does find himself at the same cafe twice getting beat up in the alley. Mm. Um, and like they were suggesting like I don't I don't think it's like clear a hundred percent either way, but their evidence for this was like the I think he sings different songs between the two um things. And then they said like the second time after he gets beat up by like the southern guy, who I think of as Ed Harris, but I'm pretty sure it's not Ed Harris. It's not, but yeah, <laughs> yeah I know yeah. what you mean. He's got Ed Harris vibes. Yeah, he says like um uh, the way he says like see ya or see you later or something it's like sort. it seems like he's like resigned himself to like I'm going to do this again he says au revoir that's the yeah, last oh, line yeah, of the yeah. movie yeah uh, yeah and the guy the I saw something online what, don't um, a little advice for the listener don't ever go online and watch like um people's analysis of like five things you may not have noticed oh, and yeah, yeah like those those videos are always goofy but yeah you know i saw something where they were like the guy he meets in the alley is death which you know shrouded in shadow uh i can see it um i don't know if uh, i'm a fan of that easy of symbolism but the guy says something to him uh lewin says like hey uh it's just this is just what i do man yeah and the guy goes, "What you do?" Yeah, the way and it's he almost says like that. a sentence, like, "Yeah, um, this this loop is happening because of what you do." Yeah. You know, um, yeah. The delivery of that line is so good; it's like kind of like half laughing, scoffing, and he repeats it a couple times. What you do? There's like a, a, a satanic quality yeah, to yeah. it too. What um, you do? Yeah, um, it's so good. So much judgment. Yeah, and so the like do it again. This idea of just being caught in this. Uh, self-sabotaging loop um, yep. uh, like do it again I mean the opening song of the the movie is is hang me oh hang me so we have hangman imagery which will come up in your choice too yep. hang me oh hang me I'll be dead and gone hang me oh hang me I'll be dead and gone I wouldn't mind the hanging But the laying in the grave So long, poor boy Been all around this world And there's there's a line that Gene, the Carrie Mulligan character, says to him at one point that I think kind of uh, sums up his problem nicely. 
uh, she asks him at one point if he thinks about the future and uh he's like oh, you mean like flying cars with <laughs> else on the moon <laughs> and great line um and it's it, look when you're in this kind of loop you're not thinking about the future at all because the future is the same as your past yep. and it, you know um and you you suspect that it'll end in death you're really hoping it doesn't but as the loop continues to repeat over and over again that death and and it gets more deadening and kind of like worn out and and at one point in the movie Lewin says something about just being exhausted you know yeah. like he thought he just needed sleep but it's something deeper than that this yep. is bone deep exhaustion yep um you just do the cycle enough and it's like, oh no, death death is coming and it may be a great way out of this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's a comfort in the loop too, you know, because it's what you're used to and and in a strange way there's like an integrity or an authenticity to it. Yeah. Um, Which is a least, big theme of the movie. Right. Or at least the illusion of authenticity. Yeah. Um, and uh, Gene says this line to him, you know, you don't want to go anywhere, and that's why all the same shit is going to keep happening to you because you want it to. Uh, and then she also says, it's also because you're an asshole. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that that just that's felt like it summed it up nice uh, to me. Um, yeah. Uh, this is just like some notes that I grabbed. Um, so I, th- I don't know how you feel about this. Like, I thought that Carrie Milligan, the Gene character, was kind of a tough look. Oh, yeah. That's something that bothers me about the movie. Because she's basically just a harpy the whole time. Yeah. And it's like, Um, right, she's like justified in being a harpy, but like it's just a tough look. Like the only prominent female character in this movie, and she's just like a nag. Yeah. Uh, That's something I definitely hated the first time around. Carrie Mulligan, I have mixed feelings about her as an actress, but she does give... She humanizes this character. I think that's the page, and she softens it. Yeah, she yeah. she's underneath. You can see that she's in a lot of pain, and she does have some lingering affection for yeah. this guy. When he, at the end, says, like, I love you, or in their last interaction, like, he just kind of casually throws it out. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, she gives him this look like, oh, you don't even know what you're talking about. You yeah. know, like, just like this real sadness and... Uh, like she really does know him deeply. Um, yeah, I think her. Yeah, Carrie Mulligan's performance was great because she does a lot to sell that. Like, why would you ever care about somebody um, who's this much of a shithead? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like um, she just she does a good job of portraying that. Like, while she's very frustrated and very angry, she does. It's clear that she loves him. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, not not no shade on her performance. I think it's that's a a, a failing of the script. Um, oh, the way like I just wrote down. Uh huh. Like <laughs> a bunch of people deliver that line, like yeah. just uh uh-huh. uh-huh. like in the middle of an important conversation, and like one side's not paying attention. Uh, Adam Driver was uh, again. There's so many guys that like drop oh, into God, this movie yeah. for, for for five seconds. You're just like, oh my gosh, that's so fun. Um, I noticed this time on this viewing that there's a lot of like um, deliberate shots of like middle aged white guys like staring at. Um, like uh, the, uh, it's usually when uh, when Lewin's on the train, mm. they just like cut to some sort of like very stereotypical like basic white guy. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I I there I thought it was the same guy both times. Yeah, I, I wondered to that. the loop uh, yeah. thing for me. Yeah, yeah, because he's got this cat on a subway. Uh, yeah, it's like the fuck is this guy um well and one time it almost seemed like a very i don't like unclear like vague but very deliberate statement about race or something because like he cuts to the shot of this like white guy sort of like leering at him uh and then he like um like lewin seems to like shake it off and he's like paying attention to the to the um to the cat and then he looks the other way down the train and there's a there's like a couple of young black kids and mm-hmm. like they smile at him and he smiles at them 
Mm, yeah. I don't know. It's just like, again, like, I don't know what any of that means, but it seemed like a very deliberate sort of imagery. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, oh, I, I just wrote down the fact that um, Al Cody, which is Adam Driver's character, and Troy Nelson, the other, uh, the the soldier folk singer guy. Yeah. Seemed the very, sweet soldier. Yeah. But they, they both seemed very robotic. Yeah. Like they were yeah. just like sort of like, it's like very, like, I don't know, like uh, affectless. Yeah. Uh, delivery um the tight hallway shots um, yeah of this like greenwich village apartment with two buildings. doors uh yeah branching <laughs> yeah. off of an angle um uh the gore, the gore finds man god that's like that's the kind of stuff that usually like uh like those scenes just like make my skin crawl yeah this is the the uh, people who lewin lets their cat out um uh, they're, they're intellectuals yeah um, which i get the feeling the cohen brothers although very smart fellas have no tolerance for yeah. intellectuals and possibly no tolerance for leftists, but we can, that's another conversation for another day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, like those scenes make my skin crawl, although in a great way. Um, one of my favorite lines of the movie is like, so, I mean, the, the relationship, it becomes clear that like, apparently like they humor him. He's like, they're, even though they have a very nice apartment and always mm-hmm. feed him, they're the last people he turns to when he needs a place to crash. And it's, yeah. it seems like it becomes clear because he finds them kind of insufferable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, like, so the, like one of the middle scenes of the movie is like, he gets, he makes kind of an ass of himself at, at their apartment and, and, uh, um, he's leaving or they're kicking him out um, uh, as he's leaving he's still kind of fighting with them but then he says thank you for the musica and it's like almost sounds like an, like an Adam Sandler line yeah um, uh, this just occurred to me that the something really important that I didn't mention is that Lewin Davis was part of a duo and his partner right. like the, the structuring absence of the film is yeah. that his partner has killed himself he jumped off the George Washington Bridge yeah great Great uh, lie by John Goodman. Yeah. <laughs> John Goodman's character says at one point, like, well, that's kind of stupid if you'll excuse my saying. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you jump off the Brooklyn Bridge, not the George Washington. <laughs> not the George Washington Bridge. Uh, and he said, what is he, some kind of dumbbell? And Lewin's <laughs> response which is really heartbreaking. He just says, like, not really. Like, yeah. It, you know, he... Yeah, great. Anytime this guy is brought up, this is the one part in the movie he opens up about what happened to him. Yep. Otherwise, he shuts down. It's clear that this is like yep. something he'll never recover from. Right. Um, and that he is now incomplete. Um, yeah. And super painfully, when he auditions for F. Murray Abraham, F. Murray Abraham suggests that he join a group. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's the idea of. A silent partner is um, something that pops up a lot in the Coens. Yep. I, I, um, Peter Stormare and Steve Buscemi and right. and uh, Fargo, Fargo. Yeah. and and uh, very similar to uh, Garrett Hedlund in this with with just chain smoking and driving. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but him and John Goodman's characters yep. and Lewin and his partner, and then when we get to uh, your choice, there's an interesting silent partner there too. Yeah, uh, but yeah, uh, thank you for the musica. Love that. Oh, I just want to throw out a PSA. Several times he gives the cat milk, and I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to give cats milk. I don't think cats are supposed to have dairy. They love it, though. <laughs> they love that shit. Okay. Saucer of milk out for the cat. PSA, before you give your cat milk, just Google whether you're supposed to give your cats milk, because I don't yeah. think you're supposed to. Um, oh, the wet foot in Chicago. That seemed like very deliberate, but I also didn't kind of like, it seemed like it was more important than I understood it to be. I don't know. I just took it as kind of showing like, this guy's... Yeah. Like he doesn't have a coat, and it's like yeah. deep winter. Uh, he's right. in New York and Chicago, uh, not not warm places in the winter. Yeah, um, yeah, and he's got this wet wet shoe, uh, wet sock. Yeah, 
uh, I, the, the just you know visual imagery like the anytime they're on the road, it's always dark and foggy. Mm-hmm. Whereas like it's I guess it's just like it's hard to get places. It's hard to go away. Um, yeah, I don't know. I wrote down. Yeah, Lewin always knows what he's supposed to say, but he can't like fake the polytests, You know. Yeah, he he's got to he's got to stick to his authenticity, which is getting him nowhere. Right. Know? Which yeah, and like that's the other like sort of big theme that we haven't talked about is like this movie revolves around the folk scene mm. in the early sixties, which like at the time the the predominant mode was you would perform traditional songs. Right. And you would try to interpret them. So you're like you're trying to express your personal emotions through these songs that have existed for a long time. Mm. Lewin's got that great line about uh uh, if it was never new and it never gets old, it's a folk song. Yeah. Um which you get the feeling he says every time. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um but um uh, and then like at the end of the movie there's this power like the last time after he leaves and goes off stage and gets his ass kicked in the alley um, it's strongly implied well it, it's like not even implied it's sort of yeah. stated but not super clearly that Bob Dylan is taking the stage and he's right. playing an original song yeah and he's like breaking the folk paradigm yeah it's it's Bob Dylan coming in the genius uh, yeah. kind of shuttling shuffling off this marginal figure um, well, it's, yeah Lewin Davis is like trapped in this tension between the strictures of the form and authenticity mm. um, like there's a lot of folk performers that he's clearly frustrated with and hates but like maintain the strictures of the form mm. uh, and he wants, but, but he wants to be able to um, display his authenticity, but like he doesn't want to break the strictures of the form. And it's like Bob Dylan is the guy who just like throw the rules out. He's like, no, I'll just do what I want. Yeah. And like, for some reason, Lewin is trapped in this place where he can't. Yeah. Uh, the, the authenticity thing is something I find both interesting. And the one thing, the big thing other than Carrie Mulligan's character that um, bugs me about the movie. Yeah. Cause T-Bone Burnett does does the soundtrack yeah. and and he it's it's a pleasant music. Uh I think he does a great job. Like I like Lewin's songs better than I like the other songs. Mm. I mean like the the song that they cut in the studio, the um please the, Mr. Kennedy, yeah. like that song sucks. <laughs> That's I find I mean, that part I lo- delightful, I, but <laughs> I love watching Adam Driver yeah. go Boop. Yeah. Um but there's there's this great uh Greel Marcus who's this kind of uh, rock writer he does a review of the movie that is one of my favorite pieces of criticism and something I return to a lot. Um, the guy sometimes is totally kind of full of shit and pulling stuff out of his ass, but um, here we're okay with that. <laughs> and in and, and this instance, I think he's right. He talks about how the, the performances Lewin does are at their core soulless. Um, that... Mm. that um, that this guy, this is a guy who's broke. You know, he's couch hopping. He he should have some pain of of lived experience in the music, but it's just a technical thing for him. Yeah. And I think Oscar Isaac is like a Juilliard trained actor. There is something about watching this guy uh, do a performance of authenticity, mm-hmm. and I think you can argue that the Coens do this intentionally. Um, but the Greal Marcus piece points out, like, I don't think that. T-Bone Burnett set out to record kind of soulless folk songs for this movie. Like he means what he's doing and whether the Coens are using that music for their own ends or not is, is up for debate, but it is something they don't seem to me particularly interested in the folk scene and, and it's actuality Mm -hmm. um, or even folk music um, except to the extent 
that they can kind of explore this theme of authenticity, right. which I'm okay with, but it's also like, it's a weird experience watching a movie that's more inspired by like the look of a Bob Dylan album cover <laughs> than like the actual thing that they're making the, the actual scene, you know? Right, right, right. Um, so that's something I struggle with still. That said, I'll probably watch the movie again and again because uh, it grows on me. Um, yeah. Well, like you said, yeah, like you said, it should not be overlooked like how many funny moments there are. Oh, yeah. It is it, the way John Goodman says ukulele. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he calls Lewin Davis cowboy chords at one point. Like, yeah, there's yeah, just yeah. some, like, great lines just buried in there. Yeah, um, I had written down that he said, that I love that he calls Johnny Five his valet with the hard T. <laughs> yeah. It's like the little language things. Oh, yeah. The, that was the other thing I, um, the, 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 the one great line that I thought, um, uh, Carrie Mulligan got as Gene was um, <laughs> this is like just great this is the one great piece of writing that they gave Gene was you should never be in contact with any living thing being shit <laughs> yes that's, yeah that's where she's telling him that he should be wrapped in a condom and he yeah, shouldn't yeah. Have, have sex but if he does he needs to put on double condoms and, and some yeah. tape uh, yeah uh, yeah, you should never be in. Because she's like saying, like you are shit. Everything you touch turns to shit. You should never be in contact with anything living thing. Being shit, yeah, it's just like <laughs> great like grammatical structure. Yeah, cool. Inside Lou and Davis. Yeah, we can recommend it. Yeah, I hope that that uh, incredibly digressive run through of the movie uh, hangs together for you guys. Yeah, I think it was fun. Yeah, it's funny. Like I'm, I, was, I thought that this episode was going to be much shorter than it is, but I have no problem with it uh, being. I'm just, I, I'm delighted that we have this much to say about this stuff. Uh, what, what are we on, Dakota? Hour three now? <laughs> yes. Are we really? You're on an hour and three. Minutes. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. Not quite three hours. Yeah, yeah. Great. Um, yeah. So, Ballad of Buster Scruggs came out last year sometime yeah, yeah. on Netflix. Dro- dropped on Netflix last year. Apparently, they were planning to do a TV show and then just kind of like realized it was more of a. I, I've. I think that that got reported, but they've consistently said that that's not, not the case. case. Yeah, okay. that they, these were stories they had written over time, and they were like, "What are we gonna do with these?" Yeah, and then they realized we had enough of them. Let's let's put it together. Um, cool. Yeah. yeah, it was uh, released by Netflix. First time the Coen Brothers that did that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it is one, two, six, six stories. Yeah, yeah. six six short vignettes. Um, packaged together under this uh the the very you know basic framing device is there's a book mm-hmm. um called like the ballad of buster scruggs and other tales of adventure or something like that yeah um yeah which something i saw and i i don't have the historical knowledge to check this out i think uh, maybe uh kim newman pointed this out the the, the horror movie critic but he he said that the book you see the date is 1873 but there's stuff in the movie that clearly takes place after that which mm. is just another thing like the coen brothers love their anachronisms and uh mixing up their their sources yeah um, so that's you know something to look into oh yeah it was the other yeah i was gonna say like um um like you said like it, it does seem like the coen brothers sort of delight in like poking at or frustrating intellectuals mm, yeah because one uh i think i think they were talking about the cat when they said this but somebody said like one of the quotes about the cat was just like they threw it in there or no, maybe this was about the Hudsucker proxy. Anyway, like at some point they said like, we threw this in there cause we knew the critics would be trying to figure it out for years. They, like <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. We just put it in there. That, uh, yeah, that seems like a move they would do. Yeah. Uh, I, Hudsucker proxy, the only Coen brothers movie I've never seen. Uh, yeah, I see, Yeah. I have not seen it either. Um, but um, yeah, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. So um, six uh, short stories. The first one is the titular Ballad of Buster Scruggs starring Tim Blake Nelson, mm-hmm. uh, who was in, um, uh, famously, uh, his biggest part was probably in um, 
uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Yeah. Um, uh, he's like a that that one is almost like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah. Uh, it's very like he's he's like a a, a singing uh, outlaw. Um, and I mean, there's like very like cartoony effects. He walks into a bar and like pats himself and then steps forward. And there's like a dust shadow that's like exactly yeah. in his shape. <laughs> and he's just like comically good at, at, at shooting and, and killing people. And he does it with a smile and um, uh, sings a big musical number in a bar. And talks in this very old fashioned, yeah. uh, uh, florid style that's, um, you know, you got you to gotta pull out your dictionaries and thesauruses to get all of his, his uh, words down. Yeah, yeah, uh, and then he's like very like um, abruptly like gunned down by the next uh, hot gun in the West, yeah. who, who is only gunfighting him because he's supposed to be the best. Like, there's no reason other yeah. than like you're the best, so I want to gunfight you. Yeah, um, and so it becomes this thing of you know it's like this. Um, yeah, there's always somebody better. Um, we mm-hmm. live by the gun, die by the gun. Um, so that's the first one. Uh, the next one, uh, near uh, Algodones. Uh, starring uh, James Franco, um, he at uh, the beginning of the movie he um, tries to rob a bank. Um, Stephen Root is the teller again. Love seeing Stephen Root anytime I see him. Um, it turns out Stephen Root is like very adept at hang- handling pan shot, <laughs> pan shot. Um, very adept at that's handling. a good Stephen Root. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very adept at at, at handling uh, robbery attempts, and he uh, frustrates uh, James Franco's attempt, knocks him out. James Franco wakes up um, at an improvised gallows in the middle of nowhere uh, with like a. Uh, frontier justice posse ready to hang him passed out during the trial yeah yeah um uh this one is like very like like comically bleak mm-hmm. um uh but uh it, as they're getting ready to hang him they are attacked by a a, a band of uh of native americans um uh, and they kill everybody but um but james franco mm-hmm. um, who's still hanging from a noose with his hands tied behind him on a horse uh, they get a lot of like uh visual comic yeah, uh, comedy out of out of that, and then um, a uh, a rancher happens along and frees him, uh, and like asks him if he wants to be his like new sidekick because his old sidekick ran off. Uh, but then another posse comes, and it turns out that that guy had stolen that herd of cattle. Um, that guy makes it away. James Franco does not, and so James Franco ends up getting hanged for a crime he didn't commit. And his trial this time, I had to rewind it a few times <laughs> yeah. because it's so brief. It's like ten seconds. Yeah. And uh, the guy goes, "Good enough, hang him. <laughs> Good enough." <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I love that part. Yeah, I mean, it's like the the timing and the editing of that one is like so good. Um, so that's the the second one. Um, third one, holy crap! The, maybe the, one of the darkest things I've ever seen. It's called Meal Ticket. It stars Liam Neeson and uh, man, I forgot to write the guy's name down. But it's the, like Harry Mellish. Yeah, I who, think he played. Uh, he was like the evil uh, cousin in Harry Potter. Yeah, Dudley. Or, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't Oops. pretend you don't know Harry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I've seen them all. I got all the books. Yeah, uh, it's just a bad memory on my part. Um, but I mean, like if you, have, it's like the incredible transformation. Apparently, like somebody said, like um, apparently, like they had to like do a bunch of work on that last Harry Potter movie because he was already getting pretty skinny mm. to like make him look like Dudley. Yeah. Uh, but he, he he's almost unrecognizable in this. Uh, but anyway, Liam Neeson um, is like rolling around uh, the old west in this cart that has like it can like unfold into a stage at the back and then um harry mellish is a um as a character with uh no arms and no legs mm. um who is a an orator um and so uh liam the Neeson, wingless thrush yeah the wingless is thrush what, what he's billed as on the uh 
on the uh, posters, on the handbills. Yeah, and so um, uh, Liam Neeson rolls them around the country, and they do shows, and they um, like pass the hat for for change. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, they roll into another town. And there's a competing show, which is a chicken that can apparently do math. Pecking um, Pythagoras. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, Liam Neeson buys the chicken from the guy who owns the chicken, uh, and then uh, pretty quickly uh, <laughs> throws Harry Mellish's character off of a bridge in the middle of winter. Yeah, they don't show that, but it. It's uh, yeah. almost more devastating that they don't show it. Yeah. And that one's like super quiet. Um, and then uh, probably my favorite of them all, Old Gold, All Gold Canyon, just mm. because it's got Tom Waits and I love Tom Waits. Um, and it's like maybe the only happy one or it's like the happiest of the bunch. Yeah. Um, uh, Tom Waits. Uh, it starts with this very beautiful pastoral scene and then very deliberately they show the animals like fleeing or going away as Tom Waits arrives. Singing a song. Yeah. Tuning uh, his heart. Yeah. Uh, and then um, Scout's like at this bend in the river like like starts looking to see if there might be gold and it seems like there might be and then he like does a bunch of work to like figure out where this pocket of gold is uh finds it and just as he stumbles across it this guy shoots him in the back uh but he ends up reversing the like taking that guy out and it turns out the gunshot um, wasn't uh fatal um, it hit nothing but guns <laughs> it didn't hit nothing important um and um uh, anyway, so he's fine, and, he, and then he he gets his gold, and he leaves, and then uh, they show the nature returning mm-hmm. uh, to the uh, to the area, and then uh, the gal who got rattled, starring uh, uh, Zoe, Zoe Kazan, Kazan. yeah, yeah. Um, as a uh, a lady who's like striking out toward Oregon with her brother, who's like a total jerk, um, just like a. I don't know what he, he's like useless, but also opinionated. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Always he's, thinks he's got, got an opportunity around the corner uh, that never pans out. Yeah. Steely Dan character. Yeah, for sure. He like dies of consumption or some weird illness. Yeah. Um, and then she's like, sort of like in the middle of this Oregon wagon train uh, with like no idea what's going on. But like the head of the wagon train, like ends up proposing marriage. So it looks like it's all going to be okay. Then they get attacked by Indians. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> looks like th- that's going to be okay. And then it turns out it's not, um, uh, and then, uh, I th- actually, I think this is probably my favorite one. The, the last one, the mortal remains just cause like, it's such a stage piece. Mm-hmm. Um, the it's like, it's just like these like great speeches. It's so dialogue driven. And then like, I had never seen that guy is, is John Joe O'Neill. Yeah. Uh, I've I, never seen him either. I was like, who the hell is that guy? That yeah. guy's incredible. And then next to Brendan Gleeson, who I'm always, again, that's another guy I'm like delighted to see. Mm. Uh, anyway, so, uh, <laughs> t- 10 minutes later, that's the plot. What'd you think of it? Um, I, this was the second time that I'd seen it. And, uh, you know, I watched it pretty recently before, so it wasn't, I was excited to go back to it, but I was like not expecting to see a lot more. Yeah. Um, I think that this could, because of how it was released, just kind of straight to Netflix with yeah. a kind of uh, obligatory few theatrical showings so they could get awards. Yeah. Uh, which they did not win. Um, uh, and because it's this anthology mm-hmm. piece, which kind of uh, genre that gets no respect. It looks like a minor work, but the second time around, I was like, no, this is like, this is kind of, the range of it is yeah. incredible. Yep. And the amount of their pet themes that they're able to return to in some ways direct the most direct, uh, address the most directly that they ever have. Yeah. Um, really like hit me this time. And the first and last sequences and the way that there's a dialogue between them mm. hit me more than ever. Like everything in between was as I remembered it. Yeah. Still excellent. Um, I see people ranking 
the the pieces a lot and it's like <laughs> they w- didn't want to release it they wanted to release it as a whole thing so like to kind of prevent that and yeah. the things really speak to each other um it's got a real build too yeah it's like it's, it's for sure like deliberately sequenced yeah and there, if you had if you separated out the pieces a few of them they would all be pretty good and a few of them maybe would be great but yeah. like together the the entirety of them it really is like more than the sum of its parts yeah, yeah. it's it's kind of uh, astonishing but um yeah. so I, I was i was stoked to watch it again i tell me about the the connection between the the first one and the last one that's not something that 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 i picked up on um well the 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 first uh the ballad of buster scruggs ends with Buster Scruggs dying and ascending to heaven with yeah. little angel wings <laughs> and a harp and doing a duet with the man who killed him. Yeah. Um, and this is something, the moment of death and it's kind of mystery is something that the movie is very much about. Um, it comes up in, uh, near Algodones where it ends with James Franco's death and just moment of grace right before we, from his point of view, experience death. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, the last bit is, it's kind of, it's these people, it's heavily suggested that these people are in this ghostly stagecoach basically going to their death. Yeah, you right. know? They're on the journey off the mortal coil. Yeah, yeah and the two guys... The John Joe O'Neill and Brendan Gleeson are these bounty hunters who, um, you know, they're they're basically the people that bring them into into death. Right, you know, they're the 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 ushers. Yeah, yeah. That's thank you. Um, and there's this point where they kind of talk about how they get people. Yeah, you know, uh, how they imp- how they become death, and uh, they, they somebody asks like well, what do you see in that moment that they die? Like, they want to know yeah, yeah. what that moment of death is like. No, this is great. Yeah, this is like, I, this I, like you said, like you were saying this earlier, like, I think this is like the Coen brothers, like, f- like f- for once, like openly saying mm. what they're about. Yeah. And this is like, yeah, he's talking about like what they do and he says, um, the, the John Joe, it's this great speech. I meant to like excerpt it, but he's like, um, I do so love watching their eyes as they try to figure it out. Yeah. And, and the, the lady says, um, uh, figure out what? Yeah. Uh, kind daily. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, she, she says, figure out what? And he says, everything, all of it. Like why, like why, what, like what, you know, what happened from, from there, there. And then she says, do they ever succeed? And he says, uh, how should I know? I'm only watching. Yeah, which is fucking great. <laughs> um, just, and that uncertainty comes up in the, the girl who got rattled. Um, yeah. Where uh, Bill Heck, the uh, the suitor. Uh, yeah. Um, they t- they have this campfire talk, which like uh, one of my favorite parts of the movie where where he, they talk about how there's no certainty in the in the material world. Right. Um, like uncertainty is a virtue. Yeah. 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 Um, but the other connection that I saw before the first and the last is there's a point, and this connects to do it again, where Buster comes in and he's asked to play a man's cards who has just left a poker game. Oh, right, yeah. And he, it's a very cartoonish moment where this guy gets up and walks out and he goes, well, this my timing was fortuitous or something like that. He yeah. sits down and he looks at the cards and I it might be a good hand. It was a good hand. I think it was yeah. like two pair or something. Yeah, and, and they like aces over kings or something. Yes. Yeah, it's it's a very good pair. He's he's and uh they ask him to play the cards this yeah. this surly joe um 
And, uh, yeah, uh, and who's that guy? That guy is like the the guard from Shawshank. I forget his name. But anyway, yeah, that's another guy um, that I'm always delighted to a, see. A, a face you see a lot. He's kind of got Biff from Back to the right. Future vibes. He's like yeah, the big gruff guy. Yeah. Um, but he he's asked to play this 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 exited man's cards, and he refuses. Yep. And then in the Mortal Remains, there's this uh, speech from the Frenchman, Saul, played by Saul Rubinek. Yeah, who's kind of got this very cynical view of humanity. Um, yeah, I called him like the romantic, but it's like um, he's he's got this like he really he talks about. Um, He's kind of dressing down Tyne Daly's um, moralism. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, maybe like a romantic in the sense that like Nietzsche is a romantic. Right. 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 Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like cap- capital R romantic. Um, but uh, he. Yeah, he, he literally tells a story of like his friend asking him to play his hand at a hand of cards, and he connects it to the soul, where it's like you can't play another man's hand like no matter how well you know somebody you don't know what's going on really inside of them right um and just those little echoes across the movie like that to me there's so much in between that uh that um which is funny like another tangential uh connection that just occurred to me i had noted that in um in the ballad of buster struggs the guy from numbers the guy that was in 10 things i hate about you um Anyway, oh yeah, yeah. Like I, I should. I meant to look up that guy's name, but anyway, you'd recognize me. Some he has a very bad French accent. Oh yes. <laughs> and Saul Rubinek, like God bless Saul Rubinek, another guy that I'm delighted to see. But like, and it's like so bad that like it seems like it's a deliberate it's choice. A, it's a cartoon French. Yeah, accent. it's a cartoon yeah. French In, accent. Improv level French accent. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like those two guys both have like a comic uh, French accent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And no, a, another uh, ridiculous. Uh, comparison between inside Lewin davis and the battle ballad ballad of buster scruggs um in that mortal remains saul rubin everybody starts saying like you can divide people into two different categories uh and they go in their kind of um taxonomy of people yeah uh in inside Lewin davis gene at one point says like oh there are two types of people in the world uh people who divide the world into two types of people and uh, and losers is, is <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the rejoinder. Uh, I just thought that was a weird echo. Um, yeah, super fun. I'm just like going through my notes. Uh, Stephen Root was a delight. Um, oh, uh, in near Algodonas, there's these shots of the horse eating. It's like real close up on the horse's like lips and teeth. And yeah. I just realized like I had never seen a horse eat. And I, I think I could have just watched that horse eat for 15 minutes. Yeah. And as the horse is going to get the next tuft of like, pathetic desert grass <laughs> yeah, scrub uh james franco getting more and more hung because uh, yeah. he's still attached to the news um yeah you mentioned this like so uh, right before james franco eventually does get hanged at the end um he spots this like beautiful young lady in a blue dress mm. and i was just like is that just supposed to be that like it's you know it's like reinforcing that like life is chaos there's like these flashes of beauty and then horror or is yeah. it like was there something else like you said something about like a moment of grace i i almost saw it as also just like the idea that people will have hope that things are going to get better until the moment the fucking news cracks your neck. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, he's like, oh, maybe, uh, uh, maybe this will be all right. Yeah, yeah. There's that great line, too, when he's in the gallows, uh, first time. <laughs> yeah, the guy next to him is crying, and he just looks over and says, first time. And, like, that joke on the page, like, sounds like the corniest thing, but it plays so well. Yeah. Oh, man, so good. Uh, meal ticket. What did I write around? Oh, um... 
was it was weird because like um, you could look at the the wingless thrush as like a circus freak, mm. uh, and then the chicken made me think of geeks, and I was just like, I don't know, I was just reaching there, but I was like, freaks and geeks. Um, uh, I just it made <laughs> Scott me th- just wants to talk about freaks. And geeks. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, it just made me think like uh, 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 that that uh, meal ticket seems to have the same view of touring that Steely Dan does. Steely mm-hmm. Dan hates touring. Yeah. Uh, is it, I I really like that. I don't think like Liam and the Wingless Thrush never talk to each other. Yeah, that that segment almost works as a silent. Um, yeah, it's it's Liam only like Liam sings a song. Yeah, and then he talks to a uh, a brothel worker. Yeah, and, and that's it. And again, just like a moment that suggests worlds. Um, mm-hmm. When yeah, she says, "Does he want to ride?" and he says, "No," and she said, "Well, has he ever had it before?" and he says, "Once," and that's all he says. And it's like, "Well, wait, what happened that one time yep. he had sex?" You know, <laughs> right? Um, um, yeah, I know, and, and I had noted, I, I noted that part too, and also I love the cut, like the there's like the 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 wind up of like um, Liam Neeson and the brothel worker like undressing each other like fervently, mm-hmm. and then it and then it's just like a hard cut to Liam Neeson like slowly pulling his boots back on. Yeah, and I was just like, I don't know, like all the, the time the, with uh, the wingless thrush in the foreground, just like with a look on his face of yeah uh, resignation and horror, <laughs> but just like yeah, I don't know something about that cut I I really loved. Um, and something while we're on meal ticket, uh, to connect it back to Lewin Davis, um, there's something about those performance scenes, the way they're lit yeah. that reminds me a lot of Lewin Davis. Yeah. Um, and also the idea of the silent partner. Yep. Um, Lewin Davis's partner jumped off a bridge. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, the wingless thrush yeah. is, uh, tossed off of a bridge. When uh, I was and like the wingless thrush is like interpreting pre-written works. So he's right. like trying to display genuine emotion through the words of somebody else. Oh like the shit. Folks I didn't get that. Yeah. 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 And, and the idea that the two of them, one of them is nothing without the other. Right. Um, although Liam Neeson replaces, <laughs> <laughs> replaces him with a fucking chicken yeah 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 oh i just noticed this time like when he buys the chicken he clearly has a crap ton of money so it's not like he oh yeah needs yeah, to that, kill that hit me this time too because <laughs> like yeah. for, it, it looks like they have like a hard scrabble existence and they're just barely getting by yeah but when he buys the chicken he pulls out this massive wad of bills yeah uh, so he doesn't need to kill him he yeah. just has decided that uh, there's no uh future in it um yeah I think that's all I got on that one. Well, I just I was like wondering. I was like, yeah, you know, you know, like him doing these like pretty, you know, pretty good oratory performances, and then this like chicken, um, yeah. which is like I mean, it's like a neat trick, but like it's a chicken. I was like, is this the chicken can do math? <laughs> I can't do math, <laughs> right? Uh, but uh, uh, but I was like, is this um, the Cohen brothers saying something about like the value of art or something like that or mm-hmm. intellectualism, like you said. Uh, all Gold Canyon. I don't know what to say other than like this movie is so bleak. And I had read a couple of things that like the whole point of this movie was like it was showing like uh, like I've heard people say like the Ballad of Buster Scruggs is to westerns what Game of Thrones is to fantasy novels, which is to say like most of them are like romantic and and uh, and uh, like, glorified. And it's like the point of this is to say like no no it's shit like the world is shit, especially in the old west. Like stop yeah. romanticizing the old west. So like 
you know, I was like was delighted to see Tom Waits, and then like when he got shot in the back, I was like, oh my god, it's another bleak story. So I, I like all I I pretty much jumped off of the couch and cheered when it turned out he was still alive. Yeah. I was so glad. Yeah, I was like, if one guy lives in this movie, I want it to be Tom Waits. Yeah, I I take it too as I mean, some people would say that it's not a happy ending because he you know he digs all these holes in nature, yeah. and ruins this pristine scene. But then when they leave. After man's foolish business is done, nature is restored. Yeah. It's a weirdly, it's like optimistic on a cosmic level of like, yeah, uh, humanity may be fucked, but. Yeah, it's like I only when I read the reviews did I like realize that take of like, oh, like, like the, like nature is like, um, uh, you know, like it, it, like it's like driven away by man. But it was like the way my experience of it in watching it was just that like my experience was not that like oh they leave and then they come back because they can't stand. It was just like nature doesn't care about what you do. Like yeah. you're this little blip. Yeah, like it's fine. We'll we'll move out of the way for a second and then you'll be gone and we'll be right back. Yeah. Um, yeah, the world moves. I didn't take it as like the world is antagonistic to man mm-hmm. or like you know whatever like mad at man or whatever. It's just like it's indifferent, like yeah. you said. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I love the judgy owl. <laughs> uh, I thought like the that fish and egg breakfast that he made. He says, how high can a bird count? It didn't even occur to me that in the previous segment, a oh, bird is counting. Oh my God. Yeah. Holy crap. There's all this stuff. He's he stealing so- the bird's eggs. Yeah. And put, uh, the owl's eggs and putting it in his pocket. First he grabs eat. all of them and, and then I- he puts them back. He puts, he grabs, there's four eggs. He grabs all four. Yeah. Then he sees the owl across the way looking at him. So he puts all four back. And then he takes one, and he yeah. says, "How high can a bird count anyway?" And that egg looks fucking great when he cooks it. That's what I was gonna say. The fish in the <laughs> egg in the so pan. Good. I was like, "That looks like the best breakfast ever." Yeah. Um, uh, I'm old, but you're older. I just love that line. Um, just like all of it, Mister Pocket. Yeah. Like, I, like after I watched, it, I spent a week just going, Mister Pocket. Yeah. That's how my friends who saw it before me kind of like introduced the movie to me. They just <laughs> saying that over and over again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that was him. The gal who got rattled, uh, President Pierce. Oh, yeah, I meant to re- read up on President Pierce. There's something about, like, the dog being named President Pierce. Yeah. His supporters are called doughheads. They yeah. nod to that. I, I was trying to maybe suss out some contemporary political relevance. But, right. Uh, you know. Um, yeah, nerves and coughing was, like, a recurring theme in that one. Um, they like some, A lot of people, like, talk about nerves and, like, whether it's a nervous condition or a physical condition. Um, I love the di- like the dialogue. Like we said, like the dialogue is very like stilted in all of these. But I really love this one, like the way um, Bill Hex character talks about. Like, Maybe I will talk to the boy. Like he never yeah. uses contractions. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the um, yeah. He was Billy Knapp, and then Mister Arthur. Like love the character of Mister Arthur. Another silent partnership. Oh know, yeah, kind of thing. Um, and that element of the story, um, I think it it makes it exponentially more heartbreaking like oh yeah the the uh the kind of unspoken tenderness between these two guys and the way that i don't want to we've spoiled everything else i don't really want to spoil this one because to me it's yeah if you don't know it's it's just a really uh that's the one where you should feel it in the moment yeah yeah To, to anybody who thinks that um they're cruelly set things up like set their characters into these terrible uh situations and take glee in it uh this to me puts the lie to that because it's it's the romance between that develops between bill heck and uh, zoe kazan is like they've never done anything like that before right and it's it's there's some like really beautiful talks between them and this really kind of like quiet pragmatic relationship that develops between them that's like i don't know it 
it it gets me a little uh, teary eyed, uh, yeah. like the the way that um, they talk about these deep philosophical um, concepts with each other and find that they agree on these things. Yeah, but it comes out of this this relationship of like needing help with very practical matters. Um, yeah. I don't, I, yeah. This is something that just occurred to me, like between Lewin Davis and Ballad of Buster Scruggs, like, <clears throat> like using the, the form of folk sort of gives you permission to be cheesy mm. in a way. And I wonder if like using the form of a Western movie allowed the Coens to be a lot more like direct and cheesy than they would otherwise have ever been. I could see that. Yeah. Like we said, like we keep saying, like many of these are like the most seems like the most like open and direct statements you've ever heard from the Cohen brothers, and I wonder mm-hmm. if it's like like using that very strict form of the Western like they allows them to like give themselves permission to do that. Yeah. For the people wondering what that sound is, that's the wood chipper from Fargo in the background. <laughs> it is. Yeah, we're recreating famous scenes. Um, oh, and then uh, the other one, um, uh, uh, similar to uh, not quite as good as Pan Shot because Pan Shot was Stephen Root, but uh, I loved uh, hearing Mr. Arthur go dog hole. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, which is interesting. That was the second one, and this is the second to last one. You get the Pan Shot and the dog hole. Um, good, uh, uh, good uh, uh, mirroring. Um, uh, and then, yeah, my only other note about the gal who got rattled is like, nerves are bad, I guess. Like, <laughs> the thesis of this is like, don't be nervous. Yeah. Uh, although they do have that big thing about how uncertainty is a virtue in this world. Um, yeah. And then uh, The Mortal Remains. Like, this one is, um, you know, we talked about it. Like, this one is almost, like, surreal. Yeah. Uh, it's It's got a... I've heard people compare it to The Twilight Zone. Yeah. I, uh, that's... Um... But you've got it's a, got a ghostly vibe. Yeah, you've got a you've got a a, nat, a a trapper, a like prim lady, and a Frenchman in the back of a carriage with like these two um, these two random guys and wards Irish, of death. Yeah, <laughs> an Irishman and uh, um, uh, but yeah. Oh, and uh, I just the the trapper. Did you recognize that guy? Um, what's his no, name? No. Um, he is like the shady old pitcher from Major League. The guy with like the Vaseline and never, everything. Never seen Major League. Oh man, yeah. And he's like one of these guys that was like around a lot, like in in eighties movies. You'd recognize him if you saw him. But okay. um, uh, he was like very hard to recognize. He's got like a big beard and everything. But he yeah. was great. And then we said, yeah, Tyne Daly and uh, Saul Rubinek, and then the other guy, John Joe O'Neill, who like came out of nowhere and does this incredible performance. Yeah, very very lively guy. Yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh yeah, and I love his line about um, uh, why people are enraptured with stories. Because like he says, like his device is like he tells people a story to distract them so that Brendan Gleeson can can thump them. And mm. I love Brendan Gleeson's like I can thump. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> they go, like, line you're, he's good, and he's like, no, you're good, and he goes, no, you're good, and he goes, well, I can thump. <laughs> um, yeah, it, I I don't know. Do, do we connect it enough to do it again? I don't know if we actually explicated that fully. Uh, I mean, we hinted at it here and there, but I mean, yeah. I think a lot of the connections are pretty like like there's like obvious visual connections like between the hangman and um, uh, I guess there's not a lot of infidelity. Well, you could say the infidelity in um, meal ticket sort of like there's no loyalty. Yeah, yeah. Um, it you know the hangman imagery as as you said, and the fact that the hangman didn't hang the first time. Right, uh, right, exactly. And, yeah, and the then, hangman wasn't hanging, and uh, he. Went back on the street and through no, no doing of his own, just right. totally arbitrary kind of Kafka esque logic, winds up uh, back in the hang, uh, hanging, yeah. back in the hanging spot. Yeah, and then there's like right, the, the gallows. There couple, we go. Yeah, a couple of people either talk about or are literally playing cards. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and then you could say Buster Scruggs is a a gambler. Like he gambles with his life the whole time and then eventually loses. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, and then um, like we say, yeah, it turns out like that all kinds of connections that I didn't even anticipate before, like thinking about like the more I thought about the song in these two films and the Coen Brothers in general, it's like yeah, there's like this is like super tight connection. Yeah. Do you, do you think that the Coen Brothers would like Steely Dan and vice versa? Uh, interesting. I think that they would like nod at each other like across a smoky jazz hall or something. Yeah. But like, I don't think that they, I don't think either of them would want to talk to the other because yeah. I think like my, my first guess is that like they would both be afraid that it would be disappointing. Yeah. Okay. I, I could see the Coen brothers not having much time for Steely Dan. Um, yeah. I could also easily see them like sort of laughing off Steely Dan, but Steely Dan maybe being into the Coen brothers movies. Uh, Steely, yeah. uh, it, it occurred to me, the Coen brothers, um, the kind of losers they portray are a little different from the Steely Dan kind. There's very little drug use other than the Big Lebowski right. and Coen's movies. And uh, Serious Man has some pot smoking in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, some some of the best pot smoking scenes I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> uh, very accurate. Um, yeah. Not that I've tr- tried it. Um, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think they, they kind of cover different uh levels of society a little bit uh or different types of losers right um but i could see steely dan definitely getting down with the the coen brothers worldview yeah for sure yeah i guess steely dan's world's filled a little more seedy Mm -hmm. um yeah there's like this like sort of like like nobody's like or if they are a total washout it's like they've become a total washout but at some time they were like in the sort of middle tiers of society yeah yeah um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So that was uh, Do It Again and uh, Inside Louis Davis and the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah. So uh, you talked about maybe doing the non Dan corner. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, t- uh, just, to, yeah, like just to open it up. Um, I mean, I was worried that we might not, like the, these episodes might be shorter. Clearly not a problem. But <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to talk to you. We, we talked about having a segment called What's Good. So, like, yeah. other than the homework that we've assigned each other in Steely Dan, what else are you uh, enjoying? Um, I went this week to the cinema, which I haven't done much lately. Yeah. And I saw Claire Denis' High Life. Um, I don't know if you... I've seen some discussion about this, but, like, I, I, I was not aware of it until, like, I saw, like, you and then, like, I saw a couple of headlines. Like, there's a headline in one of the local rags that was, like, it's beautiful and, like, absurdly static or something. Yeah. I, well, I don't know about all that, but it's, yeah. uh, um... Kind of, uh, I hate using the word art house as a, a descriptor, but art house sci-fi in that in that kind of tradition. Yeah. Um, Robert Pattinson doing his, you know, he's he's going after directors he wants to work with, which right. I, I I really admire that. Um, and he basically uh, said to Claire Denis, great French filmmaker. Um, I've heard her called one of the best working filmmakers in the world, and based on what I've seen, I could I could get down with that. Right but on. Uh, her her doing uh, this this kind of uh, uh, prisoners trapped in space movie, but uh, with a very kind of sticky vibe. There's a lot <laughs> of uh, bodily fluids, and uh, I'm not doing a great job at selling this movie right now, but uh, really a trippy and profound experience. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Cool. Sounds Yeah, definitely sounds intriguing. Yeah. And uh, Juliette Binoche also in it as a kind of mad scientist, uh, sexual witch figure. <laughs> uh, uh, the way, n- nothing that I'm saying right now will prepare you for what the movie is actually like. Yeah. Um, 
yeah. What what about you? What's what's good, Scott? <laughs> um, the latest thing, like I, I'll, I'll I'll drop a couple of plugs for stuff that I've been uh, enjoying. Like not super recently, but like I came to the show, the Showtime show, Billions, pretty late. Okay. Um, and it feels a little formulaic, and and I guess it is, but it was like it's written by um, uh, David Koppelman and Brian Levine, the guys who wrote Rounders. Mm. Um, anyway, it, it is formulaic, but it also it's got enough good writing. Um, uh, and it's it stars um, uh, Paul Giamatti, who's like always great. Um, and then I'm um, forgetting the the British guy's name who plays Damian Lewis. Yeah, yeah, Damian right? Lewis. Uh, anyway, like I I finally got into that show, and I now I'm in the third season, and I've I've actually been been really enjoying it. Um, I guess like the, the most recent thing that I wanted to drop a plug for, um, and it, hopefully it doesn't need my help, but um, I saw a couple of people talking about this new um, sketch show. Um, I think you should leave uh, by Tim Robinson on Netflix. Um, and checked it out, and like the 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 great part about it is like it's super easy because it's six episodes and each episode is 15 minutes mm. um but uh i i really enjoyed it i i, I wouldn't say it, like I, I was telling i was trying to pitch my friends on it. i was like i wouldn't say it bats a thousand but the uh, killer to filler ratio is pretty high and it's just like it's a it, it's unique to me like i haven't seen um uh, comedy like that it's like it's a very specific uh voice yeah i i still haven't watched it i, I dabble in sketch comedy and there's always part of me that's like nervous to check out sketch comedy but uh yeah well as a practitioner yeah yeah but i i do want uh want to see it and i'll I'll make a point to do so and it's so specific like i wouldn't like yeah like if you were nervous about like that like bleeding off on you or something like that or like i wouldn't because it's just so they do like one thing okay over and over again nice Um, but yeah it's really fun what's the last great record that you heard that wasn't a celadian record oh shit oh man I've been on a little bit of a Roxy Music kick lately. Um, okay. Yeah, that's a band I've never really explored. Yeah, it took me a long time to get into them, but uh, Country Life by Roxy Music. Okay. Um, I've been giving that a fair amount of play lately. Uh, it's a doozy. Yeah. Um, uh, have you heard, this is like a, this might even be a year old by now, um, The Beths, this uh, band out of New Zealand? No. Nah. Uh, great. Um the Beths and the record is Future Me Hates Me. Um, okay. And it's like, like really good. Um, Love the type. <laughs> yeah. Relatable. It's like very like, um, it's like both like um, precise, but like energetic. Um, I don't know what you call it. Like um, uh, indie pop or power pop. Um, and then like the lyrics are incredible. It's like um, English major level. Okay. Um, and it'll like put you in the head. Like, at least it puts me in the head of being a teenager. It's like, like this sort of like teenage. The Beths. Yeah, the Beths. Yeah, as in like the girl's name. Um, yeah, that's like the last record that really. Oh, nice. There you go. Let's see her tomorrow. Hi, mom. <laughs> hey, mom. Oh yeah, happy Mother's Day. Um, shout out to date the podcast. Cool. Um, are we ready to tee up next week? Yeah, I think so. Cool. I think I think our listeners have waited <laughs> long enough. Anybody who stuck around this long, uh, luckily you don't have to stick around. Like as we said, we're just going to march them in order. So uh, the next song will be uh, side one, track two of "Can't Buy a Thrill," which is uh, "Dirty Work," which yeah. I'm super excited to talk about because uh, Joe had a uh, a take so good when we were uh, doing like pre planning discussions about this song uh, that uh, it blew his own mind and he forgot his take and I had to remind him of it. Um, but it's a brilliant take and I can't wait. But I am going to uh, save it for. Uh, for next week proper yeah um what you got what you got for me uh again super on the nose like very literal connection um but a movie that i remember being very struck by and i'm excited to have an excuse to revisit uh mike nichols closer Ooh, never saw it okay cool good 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 good. i remember when it came out uh yeah starring clive owen jude law um 
Julia Roberts and Natalie, uh, Portman. Natalie Portman. Yep. Okay. Mike Nichols from Close. like 2000, right. the mid 2000s. Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, not available for, for streaming. You're going to have to drop three bucks to rent it or something. But Okay. I'll, I'll check my local library. Oh, yeah. Do that. Yeah. Um, my pick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. Uh, I promise I'm not doing this to be a dick. <laughs> this is legitimately what came to mind. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to be like obscure or whatever. Part of me wanted to do. The Norm Macdonald classic "Dirty Work," which has nothing oh, to do. With I thought about the song. that. I, yeah, I'm glad you said it because I meant to ask you: Did you consider picking "Dirty Work"? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a movie which that, I would be delighted to have an excuse to rewatch. Yeah, uh, a movie that um, uh, does not hold up for our woke times, <laughs> but uh, no. shaped my young sense of humor maybe more than anything. Yeah, uh, because uh, Chevy Chase is in it, former mm, Steely yep. Dan member. Oh, that's I, right. I that's almost connection enough, but uh, yeah. Decided to go with a more thematic, and uh, my choice is the 1975 Andrzej Zulowski film, a Polish filmmaker, called okay. That Most Important Thing, Love. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or The Most Important Thing Is to Love. I brought you a copy because it's hard to find. Oh, perfect. Um, Thank you. It's, um, I don't want to say too much about it. I rewatched it last night. I know nothing the, about it. I'm going in dead cold. Yeah. It's it's a pretty weird pick. Yeah. Um, I watched it last night and was, uh, it was, the connection was a little less than I thought, but also maybe more than I thought. Yeah. So I'm interested to see what you take away from it. Um, but yeah, it's a love triangle story of kind of a, uh, melodrama of sorts. Um, <laughs> it's, it's got everything in it. I'll say that. Cool. Um, but yeah, uh, that's. That's what we're watching. Good deal. All right, so your homework for next week is uh, uh, listen to uh, Dirty Work, um, track two off of Can't Buy a Thrill. Uh, watch uh, Closer, directed by Mike Nichols. Uh, and then you're going to have to say yours again because I've already it's already That most right. important thing, thing love. love. It's it's also a French title. So it's uh, like alternate translations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I get it. <laughs> uh, yeah, go, go online. Uh, <laughs> hunt that one down. It used to be on uh, Filmstruck for a little while, but... Uh, I don't know if it's up there anymore. But. Cool deal. All right. Well, uh, thanks everybody for uh, for taking the ride with us, and we look forward to uh, talking to you more about Steely Dan and all things uh, Dan next week. Oh wait, but before we go, oh D- yeah, Dakota, what did you learn about Steely Dan this time? <laughs> um, that nothing. <laughs> <laughs> then we've done our job. Uh, good night. Good night. <laughs>